we've been practicing together now for what feels like quite a few days. It's quite a journey that we find ourselves in. And there's a lot we can discover. There are a lot of things to learn, to understand here. We won't necessarily get it all in one seven-day retreat. There are a lot of teaching frameworks that we're offering. And what I'd like to speak about this evening is something that's perhaps not so obviously pointed to in some of the classical teaching frameworks, and yet which for me something which for me feels very much to be at the heart of what is being pointed to in the Buddha's teachings. So I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on what it means to be a part of it all. One of the fundamental and most transformative possibilities of our practice is to understand or really to deepen our understanding of the, the realization that we are not separate from that in which we find ourselves, that we are not different from all that is around us. What we can explore in one way within the, the meditation practice is the very liberating reflection that what we observe, encounter, and experience within thoughts, feelings, sensations, images, stories, that all of this we can meet it. And yet as we meet it, we begin to see that we cannot define ourselves by it. We cannot say that somehow this is all that we are. And if we are to look at the world around us, we might equally find ourselves, if we reflect deeply, if we look carefully, we might find ourselves unable to really state with any certainty and confidence that we are completely separate or apart from all of this. To see this truth of our co-participation with all of life is to understand from perhaps a different direction the teaching that equally points to our absence of a separate self. And so for me, this is something that, and a way in which I encountered this, this understanding long before I encountered the, the Buddha Dharma, which was for me a, a blessed encounter to find these teachings. And yet before that, for me, my sense of spirituality was very much connected with a, with a feeling of being concerned for, for life, for the environment, for the creatures, for the trees, for the people of this world. A sense of being affected by what was around me. A sense of recognizing and feeling very deeply, very keenly, the effect of my life, my actions in the world, and the effect of my culture and my community and my very people, species, how we were in the world and how we affected it. And I remember spending my first night in voluntary solitude, long before I'd ever gone on a retreat and spent time in silence. I spent it having left the uh, city in which I was then working and rather unhappily sort of in the world of high-powered professional office life. <laughs> and really not quite sure what else the world and life might hold for me, but reasonably sure that that wasn't really what I wanted for myself. And I remember driving out in the evening from the city, Auckland, in the north of New Zealand, where I grew up, into a, uh, a couple of hours away, a, 
an area of a forest, of native bush as we call it in New Zealand, and finding a place where I could park in the, in the woods as you might call it, or the bush as we would, walking up a path and finding these great big trees, kauri trees, in a little, ga little gathering, a group of four or five of them. And these trees can be, they can live to four and a half thousand years of age. In fact, that's the oldest one that was recorded. Although tragically it was recorded at that age after they cut it down and counted the rings a couple of hundred years ago. But I remember spending this night really quite confused and in many ways afraid of the, the strength of the sense inside me that I needed to find some other way to live my life. Afraid of what that might mean for me in terms of leaving behind the, the relative security and familiarity of the world that I knew. And there was something for me in just sleeping at the base of those trees and just the sense of their presence, the sense of their life, the fact that their life encompassed mine by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and that I was just there for a, a short visit it seemed that evening with them and without any tent or I think I just had a light sleeping bag and it was summer not quite as warm as it is here but it 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 somehow gave me the courage to make the changes that I needed to make. Something about the sense of connection that I felt and that I found in that situation, in the, in the bush, the woods, and with the trees. And this is really the basis, or it's one of the, the early places in which I think I came to understand more clearly, sense and feel more deeply what my relationship to the natural world actually offered for me and I think for us all. What our relationship to this world, what understanding our relationship to this world offers us all. This world, the natural world, what we call nature sometimes, it has a great power for us when we come to it with an openness. And one of the things that happens here on retreat is we begin to open up. We start to let down some of the barriers the defenses, the ways in which we protect ourselves by holding ourselves apart from what is around us. And one of the things that strikes me about the natural world is that it's big. It's actually very big. And that very small word doesn't quite do it, does it? Big. Yeah, it's big. It's vast. It's something that's beyond what our mind can really grasp. And yet it's sometimes really useful to invite our mind, which is so often bound in the world of concepts, of knowledge, of language, of information, some of which, of course, is immensely useful, and of course, too much of which tends to somehow stifle the vitality of our life. If we actually open up to the sense of the vastness of this world and take a moment to contemplate it consciously, intentionally, it can be really powerful, very fruitful. And there's a practice one can undertake. I think I first heard it described by Jack Cornfield, one of the senior teachers in our lineage, one of the founders of IMS. And this meditation involves going and lying down outside in the evening, at night, when it's dark, on a clear night. And we've had a few, so maybe there may be another opportunity tonight. And just to lie down under a starlit sky and take a moment to, to look into the vast open space of what we call the sky or the heavens. Just a sense that, you know, we can't really think in terms of the numbers that are involved of how far it is to anything out there. Our mind, you know, we can write the numbers down, there's lots of them. You know, what, any number with lots of zeros on it is just big, again, you know, big, 
big numbers. But if we, and, and in this invitation, you can just imagine it perhaps now, you might like to try it yourself, just imagine yourself lying underneath the sky. And then just taking a moment to contemplate and to reflect that in fact, you're not lying on the surface of the earth looking up at the sky. You're actually suspended on the bottom of the earth looking down. And from where I come from in New Zealand, this is the bottom. <laughs> really. And just what it is to be suspended above that vast empty space with those tiny little flickers of light we call stars, some of which in fact are galaxies, full of lots, a big number again, of whole stars and perhaps planetary systems. And just to imagine that sense of being suspended above this vastness, hanging there. And we might contemplate in that, in that just the really good fortune associated with the fact of gravity. <laughs> you know, we take these things for granted. But when we understand it in those terms, that without that, the first time we had moved, or moved, if it stopped, the first time we moved, we would just ping off into that vast empty space. And it's kind of, in a certain way, humorous, but what I find is to contemplate or to reflect or even to try a practice like that, it has a kind of an expansive sense to it. And that quality of expansion is really important for us, to allow the, the deeper sensitivity of our heart to start to come to the fore, perhaps. Because in the sense of that vastness of life and in the, you know, in the, the track of geographic time or galactic or cosmic time, you know, we perhaps know that we're just here for a flicker of the whole unfoldment that's taken place so far. The whole of human existence, you know, having taken place in, if it was 24 hours, the whole of human existence has taken place in the, the last few minutes before midnight. If the whole of existence that science has, as far as it can tell, determined was to be mapped in that way. And there's a way in which we might feel just the, the insignificance, the, the simple, ordinary, almost you know, fleetingness of our lives, that we're just a blink in the cosmic eye. There's something about this so just insignificant in one sense. And yet, in another way, equally and, and almost paradoxically, in the same moment, we might feel the sense of of being part of this, that we, if we open in that way to being part of all of this, which we equally are, that there's something exalting, there's something uplifted, there's something remarkable and mysterious and actually profoundly touching of the heart to see that we're here at all in the midst of all of this. And so one of the things of contemplating the natural world is that opening up of the mind and potentially the opening up of our heart too and the sense of how amazing it is at all that we're here, that life is here, even for just as long as it is. And one of the interesting things that I notice with that is when we allow our mind to take in the vastness of life, there's a way in which the the natural okayness of things starts to show itself. Like when something's really big, we can't sort of judge it or criticize it. I mean, no one that I know has ever looked up into the sky and said, well, you know, I think those stars should be over there. <laughs> you know, and I'd really prefer it if these ones were shining with a little different color. You know, I don't think that's what occurs to people. It's when we shrink something down into the size or smaller than our own mind, then we can start to pick and choose around what we do and don't like. It's like that whole preference system is premised on a shrunken sense of experience, on a contracted sense of life. And the whole urge to generate the preferences comes out of the discomfort of the, of the shrunkenness, of the contractedness of the experience. 
And when something, when we come into contact with that sense of vastness, it opens us up. It opens the heart. And we can sometimes be touched in ways that we might not have imagined possible by the simplest of things. And this is something that can happen in the context of the retreat. And over the days of sitting and walking, there's a, there's a resensitizing that goes on that's the counterbalance to the desensitization that so often happens when our life is bombarded constantly by a multiplicity of ever-intensifying experience. And that as we start to become, and we are and we do, whether we want to or whether we like it or not, in being here on retreat in this practice and making contact again and again with our experience, we start to feel more deeply and keenly our life. And we start to notice how perhaps just the shape of a leaf or the sunlight glinting on a little piece of maybe quartz in a stone or just some little creature that we see touches us, affects us in a way that what we notice is that our heart resonates or that we, we feel something that's sweet, which we couldn't describe to someone else unless they knew exactly what we were talking about already. But we couldn't explain it. And yet we know it. There's a resonance that starts to happen for us when we're touched by simple experience. Maybe just the, the vibration of a breath, a single, a single breath, an in-breath. We feel the, the vulnerability, the tenderness, and the, the, the mystery of life and the simple drawing into this organic structure of gas that enters into our very cells and our veins and our tissue. And just the, the quivering human being body that draws this breath in again and again and again. And we might be just touched by that. And in that touch, the sense that it seems to speak to is of not being so distant from, or not at, in fact at all separate from that which we may have conceived or believed ourselves to be different or than or separate from. That the experience starts to speak to us with a deeper and more fundamental truth than the stories and the images and the perceptions and the constructions that the conceiving mind generates. So this world, if we allow it to touch us, is a profound and powerful teacher for us. It speaks to us again and again of the truth of change. And we've reflected on this together a little already. The way the weather changes, well, apparently. <laughs> Probably we still remember when the weather changed. Probably it will happen again. But certainly we know the seasons of summer and winter, spring and fall the story of life and of birth and of death that rolls around and around. And we see the things that come go all around us. It speaks to us of this. This natural world equally speaks to us of the vitality and the power and the aliveness of this that we call life, of living things, of life itself. I find myself fascinated sometimes to stop and contemplate, and I don't know if this is something that might have happened for you, to just stop and contemplate sometimes on a road at the edge. The asphalt, do you call it asphalt? Blacktop? Wood? I don't know what you use for the top asphalt. Okay, okay. So if you look at a road around the edges, sometimes you see a little green shoot starting to break through the edge of it. If you go... And it's amazing because there's the soft green stuff like a piece of grass or a, a dandelion flower or something. And there's that hard, dry, black, solid, dense material. And yet a little blade of grass somehow pops its head up and just goes, ah, ah, ah. And if you ever come across a road that's been left alone for 20 years or even 10, it's really interesting what you find. 
because that little green blade of grass just gets in there and goes <laughs> and breaks it up. And there's something quite remar remarkable about a bell, or <laughs> remarkable about that for me. It speaks to the, the power of life to come through again, to, to reinvigorate the places in our hearts that may feel hard or dense or dry or that we've lost contact with in some way and yet which are not without their life nonetheless. And that life can again come forth. And this world that we see around us, we can't control it. We can't control it. We've put so much effort into trying to control it. And yet in the end, and this is actually tragic, our effort to control this world is taking this world beyond our control more than it ever was. When we see what's happening in the ecology, in the climate, our attempt to control our experience is taking our experience beyond our control in a way that it hasn't been before. But this world is not in our control. It has a lawfulness, but we are not given the opportunity to determine how that lawfulness plays out unless we align ourselves with it and actually make ourselves subject to it. Bow down to it. Bow down to it. Every time I come into this room, I enjoy feeling cool in here. It's nice. <laughs> and I know that we're getting cool in here by pumping heat out there. Only way it works. There's only so much of anything, and you can adjust it by moving it around, but there isn't somewhere else for it to go. There's no somewhere else in this world. And as we feel the connection with life, this starts to speak to us more and more deeply, I feel. I remember when I was young, having grown up in the country, I couldn't enjoy walking in a park or a field. It was kind of like it's way too tame and too sort of much human sort of impact on it. I had to go somewhere where it was wild, where there's no sign of human beings, where there's nothing that has been changed from how it was for a hundred or thousand years. And in New Zealand, it's really fortunate because you can go to those places. You can find those places. There's not many places left in the world. And it's in New Zealand only the very good fortune that human beings arrived there just a thousand years ago. And Europeans arrived there just 200 years ago that it's actually come through relatively unscathed, or lots of it has, at least. And yet what I started to notice in that was it was like there was some feeling of alienation or disconnection in those areas where it seemed like human activity had dominated or affected or transformed the environment. And there's something painful and sad in that. And maybe this is, again, something you recognize, or maybe it's not your experience. It certainly doesn't need to be but that way in which it seems so easy for us as human beings to somehow feel that we are alien in our own world, that our impact upon it is somehow outside of its nature, its na of its natural expression. And to, to find a sense of at-homeness in an urban landscape was, for me, impossible when I was young. It's something that's changed over the years and it's been a slow progression of actually seeing that what that is and what I am and what we are isn't really actually any different. And there have been moments along the way which have struck me with this so clearly, so strongly. I remember once encountering a, a termite mound in this country, I can't remember exactly where it was now, but I think the southwest, I think maybe somewhere. Um, and thinking, wow, creatures, natural creatures, built that. It's like this amazing thing. And then just stopping for a moment and thinking, but when I go into a city, I don't look and think, oh, creatures built that. Wow. But they did. 
I did. And so something about starting to see through the way we hold ourselves separate. I was doing walking meditation on a retreat in in India many years ago. And I was finding it really hard to do the walking. It was really hot. There was no air conditioning. (laughs) And the retreat was really hard. I didn't really know what the heck was going on. Perhaps a few of you can relate to that. I hadn't done many of these. And um, at that time, and I was walking really slowly, thinking, oh, what's all this about? This is so hard. And then I noticed a stick moving towards me. And I thought, oh, it must be blowing in the wind. (laughs) But then I realized the wind was blowing from behind me as I was walking really slowly. And I thought, that's really weird. (laughs) How can the stick be blowing the opposite way to the wind? So I stopped and I looked. And I had to get down quite close and look. And there was this little ant about this, you know, like, I don't know, sixteenth of an inch, three millimeters, two millimeters, pulling the stick that was, you know, I don't know how big it was, but it was like amazingly much larger than the body of that creature. And I just immediately got the sense of, that would be me like, like me pulling some 50-foot tree trunk along on my shoulder. And that must be hard work. And somehow I immediately just felt, oh, this, this walking meditation is not that bad. <laughs> you know, what that little guy's got to do here, you know, compared to what I have to do. But what it's, again, it's like that sense of somehow just, it just came to me, just a sense of empathy with the life of a creature in that way. Another occasion at Gaia House, the retreat center in England, where Christina and I are both based, and Christina's one of the co-founders of. We both live nearby. I was practicing there, and in, New Ze- in um, England we have a robin that's quite a lot smaller and in some ways much more cheeky and chirpy than your robin. I mean, your robin's lovely too. But <laughs> what I'm trying to give you a sense is of the bird, and it's a bit maybe more like a chickadee in terms of that kind of very curious, interested, not too scared of human beings sort of creature. Um, and I remember there was this one that I was trying to get to take a crumb of food out of my hand. Because sometimes the robins will come up to you and take food from your hand. And it's such a lovely thing when they do. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's so sweet, isn't it? It feels so nice. And I was really sort of hoping for this lovely experience that the robin would come and take it from my fingers. I had the crumb and I was watching it. And I was watching. I was being very mindful. I was on a retreat, so I was watching. I was watching. <laughs> and then suddenly looking into its eyes, I realized that it was drawn. It was pulled. It knew what this crumb, this was good food for a robin. And it wanted it so, so badly. And at the same time, it was terrified. It was absolutely terrified of getting any close to this great big monster that could potentially kill it. And at that point, I just thought, huh, I put the crumb down. It's like, I don't need to entertain myself by getting you to take this out of my hand. You can have this. And actually, I'm not sure I want to train you to come that close to human beings because I don't actually trust them all either. <laughs> so again, it's, it's like that kind of the experience of empathy with another creature. Something very powerful, and it's something very natural for us. I think for, you know, unless we've been told too much by our overprotective parents that, you know, creatures are bad and dangerous and scary and full of diseases and like you to, you know, do you harm, we actually have a natural interest to meet, to engage with life in that way. And it's again, it's because it touches something in us very deeply. And so we might sometimes feel moved to contemplate what's happening when a mosquito is buzzing around us. It's interesting, isn't it? What's actually happening? From our point of view, it's like danger. Don't like it. Go away. (laughs) Really. Not pleasant. Risk of serious, um, you know, if we're in Asia, possibly risk of serious, uh, serious disease. But here, I don't know if there's risk of serious disease. There's mostly risk of slightly irritating um, bite or sting, as we call it. 
from the other perspective, what's going on is this is a mother, it's always a mother, looking for food. This is what she needs to actually nourish her babies, which are still within her. And it's really interesting to contemplate that. How might one relate if one thinks about it in those terms? How might we relate if we see something that appears to be going to do something to me or take something from me unwillingly? If we see it in a different way? Because there are so many situations in life where we might have that opportunity to contemplate. What am I willing to offer here? What am I willing to offer to this life of which I am a part? Which offers me so much? And which I've, myself, although I've thought that maybe one day in the future it might happen to me, the truth is it's never happened to me that I didn't have food when I needed it. It's never happened to me. Maybe one day it might, but it certainly hasn't so far. To see that we are not different than the life around us. So often we stand apart from ourselves and look upon ourselves so critically, so harshly. Not understanding that we are very much in a journey of learning, of growing, and that the only way we can learn and grow in life is to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. The only time we stop making mistakes is when we're dead. And up until then, to give ourselves permission to make mistakes, because that's the only way we learn. It's like we're so trying so hard to be good and to get it right and to be perfect and to make sure no one can say anything that we did was ever wrong. And yet, to learn, we have to go outside of the territory of what's known and familiar. We don't learn anything within the familiar because that's what we already know. We have to go beyond that. And to go beyond that means taking the risk of making mistakes. But to, to see ourselves as part of life. Life is in a process of learning, of growing, of opening, of discovering its own truth. And we're part of that. It's so important to honor our good intentions and to understand that our deep aspirations and our wholesome intentions are no guarantee of perfect outcomes or successful outcomes on every occasion. This is how we learn. There's a lovely story of a, of a Zen practitioner who has the opportunity to meet with the uh, senior master in the lineage in which they are a student. And this is a very respected and venerable teacher who's also quite fierce. And so there's a little bit of sort of uh, apprehension on the part of the student who has the opportunity to go and meet with the teacher and coming, bowing down three times as is the foreman has the opportunity to ask just one or two questions, just a few minutes, and looks up to the teacher, says, to the master, says, can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate? And the Zen master, she looks at the student and she says, discernment, good judgment. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, I can see. That's going to be so important. That's really going to help. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, how do you cultivate and develop discernment and good judgment? Mm. Experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, of course, of course, from experience you learn, you understand. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. <laughs> Isn't this the story of our lives? Isn't it slightly even ridiculous to imagine that somehow we would be exempt from that reality? To really honor ourselves 
for what we are, which is to honor that we are part of this life, that this is our home, that we have a place here. This is something at times perhaps I think we forget or we feel distant from. And it can be so painful to feel separate from, disconnected from, or different than others, than our world, than the creatures around us. And it's important when we encounter that experience, as perhaps at times we do, and we may feel it as a sense of disconnection, a feeling of being cut off or separate, of loneliness or of just difference, that we, that we actually care for that experience, that we don't leave that experience alone, that we don't push that experience away or somehow make that unacceptable. Because that very experience and the painfulness or the tenderness or the rawness or the, the grievousness of the sense of disconnection or aloneness or separateness is actually speaking to us of the truth of our connectedness. And that's why it hurts to feel disconnected. If it was true, it wouldn't hurt. And yet the feeling is there nonetheless. And so we can learn to connect with the experience of disconnection, to get to know what it feels like. Rather than believing that somehow we have to somehow get beyond it to the experience of connectedness, it's actually the place in which our relationship to whatever it is that we're feeling connected or disconnected to, is being shown. And if we can meet it in that place and have the courage to feel it without having to believe the story that may come with it that makes a statement of self, of disconnection, but it's to see, oh, this is a feeling of disconnectedness and it actually hurts because in our heart we are not disconnected. We wouldn't feel anything. We wouldn't even be able to feel that we didn't feel anything if we weren't actually still feeling in our heart what is true. But we don't always know that. We don't always have conscious access access to that. So sometimes we can just reflect upon our place in this world, in the sense of the, again, the the benevolence of life. It's sometimes harsh, it's sometimes hard, clearly, and painfully so. And yet, you know, just the remarkable good fortune that we're here in a context in which there is food, there is water, there is air, at least just for now, if not forever. This earth that holds us, that holds us. Gravity, what's gravity? What's gravity? Science tells you it's that thing that makes things that have got mass attract each other. That doesn't explain anything. It just describes it. It just describes it. The very blessing of the fact that life and matter is attracted to life and to matter is the fundamental thing that holds this planet together and everything on it here. And that's a more fundamental truth than all of the conflict and the strife and the pushing and pulling that goes on within that. There's something profoundly benevolent in this existence. And even the suffering and the pain that we encounter and experience has its place in our waking up. And not allowing us to fall asleep for too long or too deeply. And asking us again and again to look, to see what's really true here. In this world, it's a, it's a great resource for us to turn towards. And when we experience fear, anxiety, 
despair. Sometimes it's the natural world that offers us what we need. This world lives in the present moment. And creatures different than ourselves without memories of past and stories of future live in the present moment and speak to us of what that life might be. There's a beautiful poem by Wendell Berry. He writes, When despair for the world comes upon me, and I awake at the slightest sound and fear of what my life and what my children's lives will be. I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not trouble their minds with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. To come into the peace of wild things who do not trouble their minds and hearts with forethought of grief. To rest in the grace of this world outside of the field of time. And this is what it is to live in the present. There is a freedom in this and a deep peace to be known. That doesn't take away our deep care and concern for this world and the suffering that takes place in it, but it allows it to rest, that allows it to be held by something larger. And this is something really important. It can seem for us at times that there's more than we can hold or handle. And so far as we're trying to hold the depth of suffering, even in our own lives, let alone in our communities, let alone in this world, the suffering of human beings, the suffering of creatures, the suffering of ecosystems, of this planet itself. Trying to hold that in our own heart, it feels like it would burst and therefore we dare not, perhaps. And yet, we're not asked to hold it by ourselves. And we can't fully and completely do so if we try to hold it by ourselves. But we can turn to the natural world for refuge, for something that allows us to rest with all of this. Buddhadasa, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is a much loved and wonderful teacher and reformer in Thailand in the 20th century, he was once asked how he worked with or supported students who came to him in great emotional pain and distress. And he said, I send them out into the jungle, into the forest, and I leave them there until they realize that they're part of it. It's something very simple and powerful in this teaching. That something about being in the natural world, and he, he said actually to give the full response, I surround them with loving kindness and send them out into the forest and leave them there until they realize that they're part of it. I had a, a very interesting um, I guess experience with a student on a retreat I was teaching in the um, foothills of the Pyrenees in southern France. We were outside for the whole time, and we were so we were camping, and it was actually it was hot. <laughs> there weren't any buildings; there was just a roof and uh, and tents and this 
sort of stunted oak forest of which there was a clearing in which we were camping and practicing together for a week outdoors. And there was a young woman on the retreat who was grieving deeply and very painfully for the loss of a dear friend who died in an accident just some few months earlier. And quite tragically and unexpectedly, her friend had died. And she said as she was walking amongst the trees and, under, and she came and reported this experience after several, maybe four or five days, maybe six, on retreat. And she'd been really struggling with this and not really able to make sense of it or to handle or to hold it at all. And she came after those several days of practice and said she'd been walking under the trees and just looking at the leaves. And suddenly she realized that the tree had lost each one of those leaves. And that had been something of a loss for the tree to lose those leaves. And she started, she said, she found herself asking herself, I wonder how the trees feel about the fact that Kai, that's her friend's name, that Kai has died. And she said she knew immediately that they would be sad too. And something in her heart came to rest with that understanding. Now I find it very striking because at one level one could say, of course, um, yeah, that sounds very nice, but it could be a little bit of wishful thinking going on. The trees actually probably have no idea at all that uh, anything of that nature has gone on. And yet, I think she was understanding something very true. That actually, life in its wholeness does feel, in some mysterious way, all of what's happening. And that the caring that we experience so deeply is not bound to or limited to our somewhat narrow and at times frail frame to hold, to allow life to hold this life, to allow the vastness, the natural world that we are part of, to hold what really is difficult to hold. Without ourself needing to move away from it, somehow it comes to rest. Somehow it comes to rest and this understanding of our not being separate from all that is around us. And we may at times have a sense, if we reflect upon it, that this at an elemental level, what's going on here, is, is, is natural process, is life process more fundamentally than anything we can conceive. This very body, this very body that we call my own. You know? Do you know how many organisms are living in this body? Me, we say, me, I'm living here. Actually, I recently read, you know, we probably know that there's lots of other very small beings living in here, lots of whom we're actually dependent on we actually need, and we'd be in real trouble if we didn't have. But in terms of the numbers, I've often reflected and commented, you know, if it was a democracy, you know, we'd be outvoted here. But I, I never really had a sense of the numbers. I recently read that there are a thousand bacteria for every single cell in our body. In our body. So it's like every single cell of our body, there's a thousand other bodies in there hanging out together with. And you kind of get a sense of, whoa, my body? Hmm, I'm not so sure. I mean, the reality is that those guys are going to have it when I'm gone. They really are. They're going to outlast me, for sure. It happens that way. And fortunate, too, or else, you know, the bodies would just be hanging around. But, like, what is it to relate to this body from that perspective? Doesn't it allow us to just soften and relax a little bit? Just breathe with the fact that, yeah, sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes it breaks down, wears out, eventually it dies. Yeah, of course. But doesn't it just allow that to somehow make sense? Not up here. Never makes sense up here. But somewhere in our heart and our gut. Doesn't that just make sense? This body is a part of nature. 
I mean, it's a hollow tube. It's just a long hollow tube with some appendages on the outside. <laughs> really, if you've studied any basic biology, that's what's going on. Now, a lot of the tube is coiled up in the middle, but basically it's just that. And the appendages, appendages attached for getting food, for avoiding becoming food, figuring out one attached for figuring out what's food and what might turn us into food. A couple more appendages or tubes and things attached for making more of these. But it's basically that. And what's the inside? Because the inside of the tube is full of the stuff that none of us would think was us. Is it? Really, isn't it? What's inside the tube that was on our plate a little while ago and will be in our plumbing a little while later, that's not me. Surely it's not me, is it? So there's a bit that goes right down through the middle that's not me. And there's this bit around it, which I'd quite like to think was me. And then everything else out there isn't me. It makes no sense. It really makes no sense. It's all that stuff out there that's in here that's on the inside of the tube being converted to the stuff that's wrapped around the tube. That's what's going on. The stuff wrapped around this tube is made of the stuff we put inside the tube that came from outside the tube. There's no inside and outside here. There's just this thing happening, going on. And it's been doing it for hundreds and thousands and millions of years. And it will. In this form and in different forms. And there's no guarantee this form will continue. But life continues unstoppably. And when our mind begins to get a little quieter in the humility of seeing that in fact our conceiving cannot wrap itself around that in which it is embedded. Our conceiving cannot stretch to encompass that which contains it. No more than a cup can hold the ocean, though it may be filled with water. There's a humility that opens us, that touches us, and that shows to us that the appearance of separation, the assumption of difference and otherness, is created by a conceiving mind that hasn't been examined carefully. And that in the examining of it, in the perhaps seeing through the, the ideas and the images that we hold that locate someone we call me over here and someone we call you over there or vice versa if you happen to be sitting over there. You see how silly it is? That says there's somewhere else when everything keeps coming back to us. Everything keeps coming back to us. Karma plays out in our world equally as in our mind. We seek to cultivate the wholesome because that's what comes back. We want to offer the wholesome into this world because it's the world we're living in. And what we offer into it comes back. It's where we live. The whole thing. There's no, there's no boundaries out there. And so there's something here to understand, to discover, to realize about this life that we can call our life, but that we can equally call all life. And I'd like to read a piece to close from Black Elk, who was a holy man of the Ogalasu, one of the First Nations, First Nation peoples or Native Americans. And he spoke of an experience he had. 
in his book, Black Elk Speaks, a lovely, wonderful, spiritual book of spiritual teaching and experience. He said, Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes, as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle, wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. In English, the word healing, wholeness, and holiness all have the same root. There is a profound healing as we start to understand the wholeness of life, as we start to see through the illusion of separation. And in the dissolving of that illusory separation, in the healing, of our hearts and our lives that that offers. There is a holiness that we understand that isn't something special or different or removed or other than just this. That is right here and now. That is this. that we can't define or grasp, and yet though we are inextricably part of, that is not defined by any of the experiences that come and go, the forms and shapes that appear and disappear within it, and yet is not apart from or separate from any of that either. This wholeness and healing that reveals the holiness that we can have a appropriate reverence for, a profoundly deep sense of care for, and that really calls our compassionate hearts to respond to with courage and with beauty. So let's sit quietly together a few moments. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, come to understand more and more deeply the truth of our interconnectedness, our inseparability from each other and life. For our own well-being and liberation, for the welfare and liberation of all beings in this world, 
Thank you for your practice and your presence. Please continue.